Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 this morning. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 885. And while you're finding your way to Luke 24, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but our praise band is growing. You see that? Anyone? That's pretty exciting, at least for me in particular. There's a woman sitting, standing next to me all morning long, elbowing me. Isn't he so cute? I keep hearing so. And praise the Lord for what God is doing. Um, God, uh, God has done a great work even this week in a, many, a handful of our lives. Six of us went to, together for the gospel there in Louisville, Kentucky this week and uh, joined with 12,000 other followers of Christ and sang his praises and heard his word. And, and my, my cup runs over this morning. I'm, I'm just filled to the top. I did get home Tuesday, uh, Saturday at 2 a.m. after a 10-hour car ride, and then I was at the baseball field from 8.30 to 6.30 consecutive yesterday. So if I fall asleep during the sermon, somebody wake me up, okay? <laughs> so Luke 24 this morning, beginning in verse 36. Hear now the word of God. As they were talking about these things... Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it testifies to our Lord. We believe it to be your revelation of yourself to us. And even as we just read, we, we need your help to understand it. So in your kindness to this people, will you open our minds to understand the scriptures? That we might know you better. That we might even fellowship with you through your word, even now. That we might be transformed more in the likeness of Christ. That indeed, truly, our cup would overflow with joy and hope and love. Because of our time together in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1889, two famous American men died, one being a man named Colonel Ingersoll, who gave uh, his rather famous lectures of immortality at Harvard. Uh, Ingersoll spent his entire career arguing against the truthfulness of the Bible. His death uh, was sudden, and it was a great shock to his family. In fact, they left the body, his body in the home for several days under the instructions of his wife. 
Uh, and finally, his, his remains were removed from the home because of the health concerns that it was presenting to the family. He was cremated, and, and his remains were displayed uh, for uh, many to gather and to see in a crematorium. And the reporters who attended this event wrote about how dismal the whole affair seemed to be. Ingersoll uh, was a man of uh, gigantic intellect, and he used that to deny the resurrection. When death came upon him, there was no hope. The departure, his departure, was, was just simply received as a great tragedy by the family. Well, there's another man who died in 1899. You, I trust, have heard of him, Dwight L. Moody. He died slowly, his family taking turn at his bedside one morning. In fact, on the morning of his death, his son Will was there at his side and heard his father say these words. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. You're dreaming, Father, Will said. He answered, no, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. He continued on saying, is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. At this time, all the family had gathered around his bedside, and his daughter began to pray fervently for his recovery. When Moody heard her prayers, he said, No, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling me. Shortly thereafter, Dwight L. Moody died and entered into the presence of God. Quite different ways to encounter death, Ingersoll and Moody. You know, of course, what explains the difference, don't you? It has much to do with their hope for the future, in particular the hope in the resurrection. I would suggest to you this morning, based upon the passage, we get to consider that Christ offers you hope for the future. We find ourselves at Easter evening. I hope it's okay, but this is the third Easter sermon that you're getting this year. And so it's Easter evening, it's the end of the, uh, undoubtedly, the most amazing day in all of human history, and you remember the day began, as we considered two weeks ago, at the break of dawn, as these forlorn women take their mournful journey to the grave in order to complete the burial of their teacher, Jesus, only to find the stone rolled away. As they enter the tomb, they find two glorious angels who declare, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And they run back to tell the apostles and the rest of the morning, there seems to be a great deal of running back and forth from the tomb and to their, to their place where they're residing and a series of wonderful encounters with the risen Lord and the reports begin to spread about. And so they gather together that evening to discuss the day's astonishing events, as you see there in verse 36. And they were talking about these things. And it's into this conversation, of course, that we saw last week that a man named Cleopas and his unnamed friend arrived there out of breath and full of joy. And they go on to recount their incredible Bible study with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then how he revealed himself to them in the breaking of bread. And, and so they begin to share that. And, and it's at this time that the disciples utter this truth 
that has, I think, been recounted every Easter Sunday for the last 2,000 years. It's there in verse 34. We even recounted it a couple weeks ago, did we not? Where they say, the Lord has risen indeed. And it's in the midst of that conversation that suddenly appears Jesus. And he brings with him two gifts. One being hope for the future. You see, Jesus shows up, and they're not immediately excited about his presence, as you see there in verse 37, but they were startled and frightened. I'm not sure startled is strong enough to to explain their reaction. I think they're probably freaking out. I think they were hiding behind the couch. I think Peter was, you know, hiding behind Mary Magdalene and, and terrified that they're Jesus all of a sudden is there. The reason they're afraid is because the doors were locked. We know in John's gospel, and John tells us why they're locked. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. So just try to imagine this. The doors are dead bolted. The blinds are pulled. The lamps are dimmed. And they're just kind of sitting around the table trying to contain their excitement as they whisper back and forth to one another what they have seen and heard. They're, they're afraid and yet filled with joy. And all of a sudden there, Jesus is standing behind them and he says, hey guys. And they are terrified at that. I think you probably be a little scared too. He just materialized. He just He was just, he wasn't there one moment, and he's there the next moment. He doesn't knock. He doesn't even open the door. He's just there. In fact, you remember last week that he was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and there he breaks the bread and hands it to them, and then what happens? He he vanishes. He's just gone. And now he just appears. If, If he just appeared in your midst, this man who had just died, and all of a sudden he's there, what would you conclude? Well, you notice what they thought. They thought he was a ghost. You see that in verse 37. And thought they saw a spirit. Now, I've never seen a spirit. And I, to be honest, I kind of like to keep it that way. Right? I'm not sure I want to see a ghost one day, but there they, they think their Jesus is a ghost who appears to them, and, and they don't know what to believe about this. And Jesus, in fact, notices their disbelief, which is why we read verse 38. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you doubting, he says. Why will you not yet believe I have risen, he asks. I I want you to know that disbelief in the resurrection of Jesus is not new. It is as old as Easter morning. Now, of course, it's very popular today, isn't it? That to admit, today, uh, you know, we, we're, we, we consider the people of the Bible as primitive people and silly people. They'll believe anything. And, and so they, 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 they believe this resurrection from the Jesus from the dead in order to cope with reality, in order to cope with the death of their beloved rabbi or, or maybe to help them kind of face their own death, right? But we're, we, we say, well, okay, it was 2018. We, we're a little advanced, right? We've, we've been to college. You know, we, we're, we're, we're Americans. We're smart. We're modern. We don't need primitive ideas of dead people rising from the dead in order to cope with reality, That's very common today. By the way, it's just not outside walls like this. It's even inside the church. Fifteen years ago, a survey was taken of church leaders, lay church leaders, so not 
paid pastors, but just the, 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 the leaders that lead that, that aren't on staff. And it was discovered in the churches in America, among the lay leaders, one out of three deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. One, one third of leaders in American churches reject that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and, and by the way, that's, that's, that's around here. It's, it's, it's just not way, way, it's just not California, okay? It's, it's, right? Um, there's a pastor in D.C. who, uh, in a sermon last year, read an email from a member of his church. The email read, Dear Pastor, I'm in a coffee shop listening to a group of ministers talk about the difficulties of their Easter sermon. One spoke about the difficulty of preaching on Easter when he doesn't actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Another explained too much, there's too much negativity in, the good, in Good Friday to appeal to visitors without making them question their self-esteem. Another swore and made a joke about the cross. Another said she's going to print off a sermon from the internet and print, preach it verbatim because she couldn't think of a suitable sermon to preach on Easter. That's the world in which we live in. Right? That's 45 miles east of here. That, those four people are preaching this very moment. Who knows what they're preaching? But they're certainly not preaching the gospel. Right? See, disbelief in the resurrection of Jesus may be popular today, but it's not new. And Jesus was aware of this, so he says, stop doubting. Why are you doubting? In fact, why don't you touch me? As you see there in verse 39, see my hands and my feet, he says, that as I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Touch me, he says, look at me. He's not in some spiritually ghostly form. He's not floating an inch off the ground. You could shake his hand. You can give him a hug. He's flesh and bones, he says. I'm flesh and bones. His body has been raised from the dead. And this is just too much for them, as you see there in verse 41. And while they still disbelieve for joy and were marveling, they're they're just utterly amazed at this, and they just can't get to that point where they believe because it's, they're disbelieving for joy. It's too good to be true. So it's not like they're at this point where they're refusing to believe. This is so good that they can't let themselves believe unless, it's, unless it, it, it might not actually be the case. It'd be like you saying, I can't believe I got the job, right? Or I, I can't believe we won the game. Or I can't believe she said yes, right? It, it's so good you don't want to, to let yourself believe it. Is this true, they're wondering. And why this is going on, um, the, the, Jesus, Jesus wants to continue to bring them to this truth. That this one who was buried, who died and was buried, is now standing before them. And, and they're starting to come around. It's too hard to believe. And so Jesus does one last thing for them. You see there in verse 41. He says to them, have you anything to eat? Right? So I'll prove to you that I'm alive. Let's have dinner. Right? Do you have something to eat? Now there may be a, a secondary motivation here for Jesus. He hasn't eaten in a while. Okay? And he's, he's been in the tomb for three days. He's walking around the countryside. So a nice dinner sounds good right about now. Do you have anything to eat, he says. And once again, you'll notice that the apostles let him down in verse 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. 
right? So he just paid for the sins of humanity. He hasn't eaten in days. And, and he says, can they give him a piece of broiled fish, right? No, you go kill the fatted calf, don't you? He was dead and he is alive again. Let's kill the fatted calf. No, may I have, man, I could really go for a piece of broiled fish right now. No one has ever said, okay? But this, this is what they give to Jesus, right? And, and, and Jesus is humble, you see in verse 43, and he took it and ate it before them. Now, what can be more physical than this? See, he wants to destroy their doubts. He says, I want to show you something amazing. Watch this. And he takes a bite, and he eats it. Right, throughout his life, he's performing miracles to prove he's divine. After he's raised from the dead, he's not calming the storm anymore. He's not feeding the thousands, not walking on water. He's feeding himself to prove that he's human. And by the way, it's not the only time. We already saw earlier in Luke 24 that he, he's at dinner with Cleopas and the, the disciple there. Um, we, we'll read in Acts 1, verse 4, uh, that Luke will say, Once while he was eating with them. When Peter's arguing for the resurrection in Acts 10, he would say, he was seen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, right? Ghosts don't eat. Spirits don't eat. Jesus has been raised. He has a body. Not, not had a body, not once inhabited a body. He has a body. That means God and humanity are united forever. He is right now embodied. Jesus has a body now, this very moment, and will forever. Now, now listen, you need to understand how relevant this is for you. So, so what? Okay, Jesus has a body. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so as Christ has been raised from the dead, so shall we be raised by the dead, raised from the dead if we trust in him and we are going to become like him. He is the first fruits of the resurrection of the great resurrection harvest to come. And one day we will not just be with him, but we shall be like him. Which means that when you pass through death and Christ returns, raises us from the dead, you will live, you will have a physical body forever. Some people think that after death, we, we leave the physical behind forever, right? We, we leave the body. Now, certainly when those who die in Christ, they die before Christ's return, their spirit does go be with him, but to await a bodily resurrection, but some people think, no, we just become spirits forever. And as spirits, maybe we could see, and maybe we could hear, but we cer certainly can't touch or smell or even taste. And we've what has happened is we've absorbed this, this very ancient idea, it's Greek and Roman, that the physical is corrupt and the spiritual is pure. And so to advance, we leave the physical behind, and we leave the corruption behind, and we, we just embrace the pure spiritual reality. This is, this is what the philosophies of the world say. And so, by the way, you'll never find a single fable, a single legend, a single myth throughout ancient literature, search the world over, of a physical bodily resurrection. It's an absurd idea 
to the world's cultures. And yet here Jesus is raised physically. In fact, in John 21, there's a wonderful story that, that, that Peter is out on a boat fishing and, and he sees Jesus there on the shoreline. And, and Peter gets so excited, he just jumps in the water and starts swimming towards Jesus. And he gets to the shore and Jesus is there on the, on the beach. You know, and you know what he's doing? He's cooking breakfast. Jesus, Jesus is cooking breakfast. He's the risen Lord. He was dead. He's alive forevermore. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He holds the keys of death and he makes breakfast. Okay? Would you like some? He says. My friends, that's not the sort of thing you make up. Right? This is not what you just come up with. And Jesus has this physical body. His flesh and bones touch him. He eats, he drinks, he even cooks. That's your future. That's what we will be like as well. He, we, we will have a physical body, but you also notice there's something unique about his body, don't you? We might also call it a spiritual body. That is, he seems to be able to just emerge wherever he wants to or pass through walls. I'm not quite sure. He doesn't explain it, but we know he just shows up and then he's able to vanish at will. Right? If you're, tr- <laughs> if you're trying to say, that he has a body, that he's not a spirit, well, you don't make up the fact that he vanishes and appears. That sounds very kind of ghost-like, right? But if you're trying to say he's just a spirit, not a body, you don't say he eats breakfast, right? You see, the scripture is putting this together, what we would never come up on our own. Right? We want to know, which is it? Is it, a, is, it a, is it ghost? Is it a spirit? Or is it a body? Well, evidently, it's a physical body, but it's also a spiritual body, which I think is what Paul means when he describes the resurrection. And he says, of the body, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so we, we who trust in Christ, when Christ returns, we will have a physical body. And yet that physical body will be a spiritual body, which evidently will have abilities that far exceed what's available in the body in which we, inhabit, we are right now. So let, let me do my best to kind of explain what, what this might be like. We're not quite sure, but we, we understand reality around us through our physical senses. We have five physical senses, right? We could see, we could hear, we could touch, taste, and smell. And we, we are able to perceive what's around us, the reality, through those senses. So what, what if you only had four senses? What if you didn't have five? Well, let's say, for instance, you're born blind. And so you couldn't, couldn't see. You've never been able to see. And, and you come up to me and say, Stephen... Um, you know, I hear people talk about color. Uh, I, you know, people say it's, this is blue, that's, that's red. And, 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 and you being blind, you might say, is red like the sound of a trumpet? Or is red like uh, the taste of spicy food? And I would say, no, no, that's not what red is like. I, I would say, no, you, you can't experience the reality that is red unless you can see it. Your other sen- you can't perceive it with your, with your other senses, right? There's, there's a, we, we can't see red unless we have the sense that's designed to see red. Now, what if, 
in the bodies in which we now have, compared to the future, we're all blind. Right? What if there's a reality all around us that we can't perceive or understand? John Edwards, the America's greatest theologian, so this is just not my idea, by the way, he says, what if the resurrection body has six senses or a hundred? And that when we actually, Christ returns, we, 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 we could actually understand what God has made. What if that's the reason why there's so little descriptions about what heaven is like in the Bible? Because it would be trying to, like trying to explain red to a man born blind. You just can't get it. You just can't understand it. What we do know is that the resurrected body is, though physical body, is far different than just the body in which we have right now. In fact, they keep meeting Jesus, don't they? And they're not quite sure it's Jesus. You notice that? It's like, the, the, like Mary Magdalene thinks he's a gardener and Peter is on the boat. He's not sure. There's something different about Jesus in his resurrected body. You can kind of tell, but you can, kind of can't tell. It might be like if you had a friend when you're 12 years old, your best friend, and then you don't see each other for 30 years. And then, and then 30 years later, your best friend comes up to you and says, hey, it's me. And you'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, who are you again? And then he says, no, don't you remember? It's me from when we were kids. And then you would say, oh, now I see. Now I get it. I wonder if we see each other in our resurrected bodies, we're going to come up and, and we're going to say, I always knew, there's something about you, I always knew you could be like this. I think we're going to say, look at you, you're glorious. You're amazing. I, know, I always knew somewhere in there, this is what it would be like. There's something radical and amazing and, and, and beautiful about this, this body. I know there's some, some of you think, you know, if I could just be young again, right? You know, if I could just do this again. Or you say, man, I, I was so beautiful back then. All due respect, you were ugly back then, okay? <laughs> compared to what you will be like. Let me finish the sentence. Comma, compared to what you will be like in the resurrected body, right? So enjoy growing old. This will be the only time you ever get to do it. And I think all the frailties and all the slowing down and all the aches and pains will just further magnify in your heart the glorious body which Christ has for you. It's different. It's different than this body. And it's the same. They're still hugging and eating. They're still talking and singing. There's still walks in the garden and comfortable chairs and cups of coffee by the fireplace, right? To a satisfaction we cannot even understand. And I think to the degree in which we understand this, it will transform our lives. So it's just not, so you say, so what? Okay, or that's what I have. Good. I'm glad for that. But what about now? Well, my friends, should this not fill you with joy? Now, today. Should it not fill you with joy what, what you are, what, what, where we're headed if you're in Christ? It was Tim Keller who, who tells a story of two people who are given a job. And, and the job is monotonous and it's tedious and it's boring. And you work 80 hours a week, six days a week, and you have no vacation for a year. And person A is told, listen, at the end of the year, we're going to give you ten thousand dollars. Person B is told, at the end of the year, we are going to give you ten million dollars. 
Now my question, do you think person A and person B might experience their present differently in light of the hope in which they have? Both have the same job, both under the same circumstances, and yet they will experience those circumstances radically different. Like one's going to complain, one's going to probably whine and be irritable and miserable and probably last three weeks before they quit. The other is going to whistle while she works, right? It's just, all right, it's going to be happy. Of course the job's terrible. Of course, right, it's hours are long, it's hard, it's monotonous, but her mind is saturated with the future, So you have two people who have this same present and can experience that present radically different because of their belief in the future. My friends, what you believe about the future controls how you will experience today and how you will experience tomorrow. Do you believe that you're going to become like Jesus one day? I would suggest to you that is far greater than $10 million dollars. $10 $10 million doesn't even hold any weight compared to what we have. So, you, you, listen, you might have a hard life. You might have a terrible job. You might, you, you, you might be in the midst of t- trouble and trial and difficulty and hardship and all the rest. But please, listen, and it's easy to become resentful, isn't it? It's easy to become bitter unless your hope is elsewhere. And your life is going to be worth $10 trillion and 10 trillion times that. This is why I think Paul exhorts the church in Colossians, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes to the very next verse, and by the way, while you're at it, set your hearts on things above. Just don't get bogged down in the midst of the trouble and trial in this life. Set your minds on where you're going. And listen, compared to the life in which we're going, we're all poor. We're all ugly. I don't care if you make 10,000 a year or 10 million a year. The difference is negligible. It's not even significant compared to the glory in which we shall receive in that day when Christ returns. That ought to fill us with joy regardless of the circumstances that we face in this life. All right? But it also should not just fill us with joy. It should fill us with a willingness to sacrifice. Right? I, this life, there's, good, there's much about this life that we, we love. And there's, there's this life we want to experience. And there's things we want to do and places we want to go. go and there's, there's food we want to eat and all the rest. I have, a, I have a list of about 20 mountains I want to climb. Okay? And most of them are not in this country. They're in Chile and India and Nepal and places like that. And I probably won't get to many. Talk to my wife for me, please. But the chances are... I'm not going to accomplish those things that I would like to do. But you know what the resurrection tells me? This is not the only life I get to live. And therefore, I don't need to get everything out of this life. Instead, you know what I could do? What you could do? You can sacrifice. You could give your life away for the glory of Christ and the spread of his kingdom. You could, you could let people impose on you for Christ's sake and relax. You can voluntarily bring sacrifice into your life, even suffering for Christ and the kingdom, because friends, you get another life that lasts forever. Many of you know uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a dear sister in Christ and is uh, paralyzed from the neck down after a tragic accident when she was a teenager. Um, One of the many problems with being paralyzed from the neck down for Johnny is that she's Episcopalian, right? 
And I don't know if you've been to Episcopalian church service recently, but it's stand up, sit down, on your knees, back up, back down, right? You're constantly moving in Episcopalian church service. And she writes if one day she came to the worship service and pastor called for everyone to get on their knees before God. And the whole church descended to their knees, leaving Johnny alone, sitting in her chair. And she just began to weep. Right? And she thought, I'll never be able to bow before God again. In fact, she was on the awful verge of becoming a Baptist. Okay? Right? We want to kneel before anyone, right? We're American, right? Okay? Until she remembered the resurrection. She writes, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I will be able to do on my resurrected legs is drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. Then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. Can you imagine the hope, she says, that the resurrection gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? No other religion, no other promises new bodies, new hearts, new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope to live. My friends, we don't float from cloud to cloud. Jesus eats, right? Don't try to get everything out of this life. Let it go. Give Christ your life. Say, use me however you want. Even if it's hard and difficult, involves suffering and sacrifice, because you're going to miss out on nothing, right? You will miss out on nothing as you give yourself away for the cause of our Lord and for his kingdom. One day, you're going to run and dance and sing and eat and hug and drink, and there'll be oceans and mountains to climb and feasts to have and spring days and music and exploration and stirring conversation. So just relax a little bit and begin to give yourself away for Christ and his kingdom. This world is not all there is. You can sacrifice because of the resurrection. We have to move on, but uh, quickly, just you could serve. And similar to sacrifice, but I, I want you to see the resurrection tells us this world is important. It, resurrection of Christ proves that God loves the creation. He loves this world. All religions say we need to escape from this world. The spirit goes elsewhere. The resurrection says, no, God loves both the spirit and the body. There is a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection. And God's going to redeem the physical world. And one day the lion will lie with the lamb and, and there'll be no hunger and there'll be no disease and all the world will be healed. And the God, because God cares about it all, which means that you and I, as we live this life, should care about it too. We should care about injustice and care about hunger and care about the orphan and the widow and the suffering and broken families. We should give ourselves to blessing this, the people of this world and this world in which God has made us serve as God shows us in the resurrection. You see, he gives us, Christ shows up and he says, gives us incredible hope for the future. But he also, not, he gives another gift. He gives us help for the present. You see, even though Christ has come and he's, he's revealed himself... It, in Christ's mind, it's not enough that they see him or, or even touch him or watch him eat... 
right? He needs to teach them. Look in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Christ, once again, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he teaches them from Scripture. It's not enough that they experience him. They need to believe in the resurrection because the word teaches it. So it's Kent Hughes who says Jesus did not want them to rest their belief in his resurrection on their personal experience alone. He was not interested in their becoming an elite group with a special knowledge of Christ. Resting their faith on a miracle is not sufficient. He wanted them to ground their experience of his resurrection on the massive testimony of Scripture. And so beware, Christian, of simply, I just want to experience you, God. I just want, to, I want an experience and, and not spending time in God's word and studying God's word. Jesus grounds his resurrection in the very word of God. In fact, he mentions there are three parts of God's word, the law, he says, and, and uh, the, the prophets and the Psalms. Now, you may, you may not know, maybe you do, but that our Old Testament, there are 39 books in, in our Old Testament, we follow the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It was translated around 200 years before Jesus uh, was born. In, in, in our Greek Old Testament, we have a different order of the books than the Hebrew Old Testament. So what we have is we really have four sections in our Old Testament, right? So we have the first five books are the law. The next 12 books we often call the history, right? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel, Second Samuel. Okay. Then the next five books are the wisdom literature. Right? So we have Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Job. And then we have the last 17 books are the prophets. We have five major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then we have the 12 minor prophets. So we have, we have law, history, wisdom literature, and prophets. That's how we do our Old Testament. But the Hebrews didn't do it that way. They only had three sections. And the three sections, it's the same books, by the way, but they order them differently. And what they called it, law, prophets, and psalms, or sometimes the writings. So the law is the same, the first five books. But then what they called the prophets included Ruth, included, uh, excuse me, included Samuel, included Joshua, included Kings. And then they get to the psalms, or the writings, and that includes all the poetry, but it also includes the books of Chronicles, for instance. In fact, the Hebrew Old Testament ends with the book of Second Chronicles. Now, why am I telling you all this? Uh, the, the reason is, is because Luke here says Jesus went to the law, the prophets, and the psalms. In other words, Jesus is showing them the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, points to him. It all points to the fact that, that he would come and that he would live and he would die and he would be raised from the dead. It all points to him. And so Jesus inspired this. And this is why Peter would one day write, all the prophets testify about Jesus. Or Philip, when he meets the Ethiopian reading Psalm 53, and he says, well, who's this passage about? Then the Bible says, then Philip, with that very passage of scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. Or so why Paul, when he preaches, says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer and, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. In other words, what Jesus once again is teaching us is that the Old Testament is about Christ. Now, we saw that last week, didn't we? 
right? And we, we consider that at length. And I don't, I don't want to do that again. Um, but, but some of you, after last week's sermon, said, okay, you've shown us that the Old Testament is about Christ, but when I'm reading it, how can I find Jesus in the Old Testament? Right? What, what, what's some, some skills or tools that I could use to be able to explore and discover Christ when I read the Bible? And so let me just quickly offer you two suggestions. That you should, when you're reading the Old Testament and you're looking for Jesus, you want to look for patterns and prophecy. So patterns and prophecy. And when I say patterns, I mean like a, a blueprint, something points us to something else. And so there are patterns that point us to Christ throughout the Old Testament. You might see it in things. So one type of patterns are things. So the temple or the manna or sacrifices or Noah's Ark. These are all things in the Old Testament that point us to the work of Christ. But another type of pattern are people. So the people, usually when you come to any hero in the Bible, they're going to point you to some part of Christ's life. We talked a lot about it. If you, if you want to go listen to last week's sermon, we go through this. We spent way too much time, I'm sure. But Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Job and Daniel and Esther and Elisha and David, they all, all are pointing us to Christ, all the heroes of the Bible. You're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. They all point us to Jesus. So, so things are a type of pattern, people, but then you have events that also point us to Christ, like Joshua leading the people into the promised land or the Passover lamb, or David conquering Goliath, or the serpent lifted up in the wilderness in Deuteronomy, right? They are numbers. They all, they all point us, these events point us to Jesus. So you have these, all these patterns. You're, you should be looking for these patterns. And then, of course, uh, you have prophecy. That the, the Bible is full of prophecy. So a virgin would be with child, or he'd be born in Bethlehem, or they weighed out as 30 pieces of silver, or he would have a grave with the rich man, or they would pierce his hands, or Hosea 6, on the third day, they will raise him up. Psalm 16, you won't abandon me to the grave. Right? So we have all these prophecies that point us to Christ. You know that 25% of the Old Testament is prophecy. 25%. That makes Christianity different than any other religion in the world. You may have not read many other religious books and many other scriptures, small, small s. But please understand that none of them have anything like what we have in the Bible as far as prophecy. So you might admire their literature or, or they, they may, you may think, okay, this contains some wisdom in it. And that may be true. But, but there is no other book like the Bible. No other book even claims to be like the Bible with all the predictions and then the subsequent fulfillments. It's why we trust it, right? Because it's God's word. It's why we study it at length every Sunday morning, right? Because we believe it's the word of God. It testifies to who he is and what he has done. Of course, Jesus has already told them all this before, right? That the, the, old, the old Testament's about me. You even see that in verse 44. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, right? I've already shared this with you. So in Luke 9, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 18, we saw Jesus say, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. After flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. So he kept teaching them, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But do you remember, whenever we see Jesus teach them this is going to happen, there's this little phrase that says, they didn't get it. Right? So in Luke 9, it says, they did not understand the saying. Luke 18, for instance, they understood none of these things. Because their minds were closed to the truths of the gospel. Paul says, 
The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand that because they are spiritually discerned. So there's a natural mind. There's a, we're, all, we're all spiritually blind, even the apostles. And that means they need more than truth. They need more than the gospel. Hear me out. They need help understanding the gospel. They need to be given a mind to receive it, sight to see it, which is exactly what Jesus does in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. He gives them an ability to to get it. See, many people assume Christianity is just something you decide upon. Like, you know, I like Christianity. I like its morals. I like its ethics. It works for me. I think, you know what I think? I think I'll become a Christian. But I don't think that's how he became Christian. Right? I mean, is that... Is that your experience? Is that, okay, after careful months of, of deliberation, I sat back and I said, I've considered all the evidence. You know, I have decided that today I'll become a Christian. I imagine there's not a single person in this room that would say, that's how I came. Instead, I think what probably all of our experience in some degree or another is that Christianity came upon us. It pressed into us. And begin to, to, to make demands upon us, right? We, we don't simply decide, today I get to decide. No, it just, it, it, was, it was coming on me and felt the weight of it. Of course, we make a decision. We must decide. But you only decide for Christ because Christ has already been working on you. Christ is seeking you out. Jesus is not a passive savior. and He doesn't go on the cross and pay for sins on the cross and then sit back and, 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 and see if you'll figure it out. He comes after us. He opens our minds, Matthew 11. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself to. Right? He comes on you. This is called the prophetic ministry of Jesus. You know, the Old Testament, there are three offices, prophet, priest, and king. We've seen Jesus' priestly ministry on the cross, his kingly ministry in heaven. But his prophetic ministry is really twofold, Right? There's really two parts to his prophetic ministry. Now, I'll be quick here. And some of, some of, for some of you, you're going to be bored out of your mind for the next five minutes. But I'll be quick, so just hang in there, okay? Some of you are thinking, this is awesome. So let me just say you're welcome, okay? <laughs> There's an external prophetic ministry to Jesus and an internal prophetic ministry to Jesus. Sometimes this is called the past and the present prophetic ministry of Jesus. So Jesus came to the earth and he came as a prophet. That is, he came to reveal to us God. He explains God's word. He explains the will of God. That's the external prophetic ministry of Jesus. He gives us the truth, but that's not enough. He needs to come to us through his spirit and open our minds to the truth that we might receive it. That's called the internal prophetic ministry or his present prophetic ministry, sometimes called illumination. So we have the external word. Here it is. This is the very word of God. It's on pages. We can read it. We can study it. But we also need the internal word of God, which is not a new set of revelation. There's not two streams of revelation. The internal word comes to help me understand the external word of God. So let me draw a metaphor. 
What, you all can see me right now if you're still awake, okay? What, what do you need to see me? You need two things, don't you? You need eyes, right? And you need light. If you do not have either of those things, you can't see me or anything, right? We, we, the, the, the eye doesn't work if there's no light. I mean, you could be in pitch blackness. You could hold your hand in front of your face and say, I know it's there, but I can't see it. What's the problem? Is your eye broken? No, you need light. There's no light. But if there's light and your eye doesn't work, you're blind. You can't see anything. You need both. And so Jesus comes and he brings both. He brings the light. Here it is. The light of his word. And he gives us sight. He opens our hearts and our minds to see his truth. And it's both here in verses 44 and verse 45. Right? He teaches them his word. And then he opens their minds to understand it. Why I was with you, I taught you this, but their minds are closed. Now, let me work in your heart. Let me open your heart that you might receive the word of God. And that's not the only place. Remember Lydia in Acts 16, the Bible says, and the Lord opened her heart to do what? To pay attention to what Paul had said. Or Paul will write to the Ephesians. says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may understand what I have already taught you. I taught you the external word of God, but now God has to come into your heart and give you sight and understanding to see it. Or 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins his letter and he says, we know that God has chosen you. Right? How do you know? How do you know there's chosen? Well, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, just not words on a page, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, right? God, open your heart to receive it. So, okay, what does that mean for us as we close? Well, it means you have family and friends, right, who you're witnessing to that don't get it. Well, friends, don't be surprised at that. The apostles didn't get it, okay? You keep teaching, you keep answering questions, and you keep praying, for God to give them understanding. Right? They're, not, they're not stupid. They're blind. Right? So you don't yell at blind people, don't you see? Right? That's mean. Don't do that. Right? No, they don't see. They need a work of God. God must open their eyes. That, just like God opened your eyes, Christian. It's the only reason you believe. He gave you a heart to do so. That should help us in our evangelism. We're praying for people. But even for, for us as Christians, right, we, we still have some blindness in our eyes, don't we? And we seek the truth. We go to the light. But we also have to ask God for sight. Lord, let me see. I need your help. You ever remember a time where you're in God's word and it just, just radiates? It's just overwhelming. It just comes alive. I remember a handful of years ago, I was, I was in my office and I was reading God's word. And it, um, it, <laughs> it, was just too, it was just too good. It was too good. And I, I literally pushed the Bible away on my desk. And, I say, and, I just, and I'm weeping there in my office. I said, God, I can't. It's too bright. I can't 
take it anymore. It's too radiant. It's too powerful. It's too overwhelming. That doesn't happen to me every week, but I'll tell you, part of that happens to me every week, right? Because I'm in God's word. I mean, it happened when I was Leviticus. God just said, let me show you myself. And it just blows me away. You come to God's word and you read it, right? But you can't see the light unless you have eyes to see it. So you say, good morning, Father. I'm so excited to see you today. Give me eyes. Open my heart. Because, Lord, I can't see you unless you work in me. And then what do we do? We go to the word. We don't want to sit in silence and just think he's going to flow. We go to the work. We study hard. We memorize. If you're a nerd like me, you diagram it because that's awesome, right? You just break it down. The word comes alive. We think deeply and we pray fervently. Let me say lastly, maybe you've never seen it. Maybe you don't You just like, I don't know what this guy's yelling about, but the, I, don't, I don't see any beauty here. Right. I think perhaps there are some here who need to confess to the Lord, you're blind. I mean, he's totally blind. And I pray that God would even do a work in your heart right now that you would say to him, God, open my eyes that I might see. Open my heart that I might believe. Because as soon as you say, God, I don't see, you've begun to see. Right? Is that not God doing work in your life even there? Right? You, you, if you can see that you're blind, it means your blindness is being healed. I remember when my, my father, before he came to faith in Christ, and I was witnessing to him, and he got to the point where he says, Stephen, I want to believe. I just can't. Right? And I, I knew that God, that's, if that desire, is that not God? That's just the beginning. God's taking the blindness off him. He's bringing him to faith. And by God's grace, one day he did see and he surrendered. Are you willing to admit you're blind to spiritual truth in order that God might begin to do a work in your life? He wants you to see him, just like he wanted the apostles to see him. We saw that there in verse 39, didn't we? He says, see my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see. See me, he says. But it's, it's kind of odd, isn't it? He doesn't say, look, look at my face. It's me. Right? Look into my eyes. Don't you see? It's me. He says, hey, guys, look at my feet. Right? Just take off his shoes. Hey, I want, look at my feet. It's me. What's he doing? Look at my hands, he says. You know what he's doing. Because the resurrected, glorified body of Christ bears the wounds of our redemption. I think of all those who will live in eternity in the glorified bodies, there will be one person whose scars will remain. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the reason why is, is I, want you to, I want you to see. Because when we've been in this world for a billion years, we will never forget that we are there because we have a Savior. And I think, I don't know this for, I'm speculating, but I think one day my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is going to say, come here, I want to show you something. You see that there? See this here? That's why you're here. I paid for your sin through these wounds, and we will praise him forevermore 
because he has died for us. A permanent reminder, we need a Savior. Can you see that even now by faith? Perhaps there's someone here that God is just opening your mind right now. That you would see his wounds, recognizing he has died for you. And that you would believe and be saved. Our Father, we're thankful for our Lord. We're thankful that he has risen from the dead. We believe that. And we believe like he has risen from the dead. We too, who are in Christ, shall rise from the dead. We believe that because we have seen it in your word and you have given us eyes to see it and hearts to believe it and minds to rejoice in it. And yet we want more. We're not satisfied. We want more of Christ, more of you, our Lord, more of your love, more of your glory shining into our hearts. So even as we leave now, may us, may us be people leave seeking our God that we might hear in our minds Throughout this week, the Lord Jesus saying, I want you to see me. Just like he said to the apostles, see me. And that we would run to your word as we pray for eyes. Let us see. Let us see for our great joy and for your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.